Yeah, I want to explain what the problem is with the Supreme Court's decision, uh, which has nothing to do with, you know, whether it's a good idea for Derry to be a minister or not. Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor-at-large. And I'm Maury Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns in Capitol Hill. Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on power politics. In today's program, why we can't trust our presidents with classified information. Also, as anti-Semitism rages on campus and in the streets, do we have an effective response? Professor Eugene Kantorovich will give us his ideas on what we're doing wrong and what we should be doing right. And later in the program, Maury and I will let you in on our Influencers of the Week, as well as our fearless forecast for what's ahead. So today we're going to start with why we can or can't trust presidents with classified information. And it's obviously from what's going on in the news that we cannot. Former President Trump and now President Biden both have scandals swirling about taking classified information home with them. And it's something that concerns many Americans. And uh, Maury, we were talking about this before we went on the air. And uh, one of the questions you asked me was why? Why should we be concerned? about classified information. So I just want to give a quick dictionary definition of classified information for the listeners. For the purposes of our discussion, we can define classified information as information that requires protection against unauthorized disclosure. And why? Because it's in the interests of national defense and national security or the foreign relations of the United States to make sure that this information does not become public. And there are uh, basically three levels of classified information. Uh, the first one is top secret, that if that got out, it would cause exceptionally grave damage. Then there's secret information, which uh, according to the dictionary definition would cause serious damage. And then there's just plain confidential information, which is something that shouldn't be shared. There's also a fourth category that people speak about less. Some of the top secret information is so top secret that it can only be viewed in a SCIF, which is... Uh, basically an acronym for Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. That information comes from secret sources and closely guarded intelligence methods. It could come from intelligence gleaned from an electronic intercept or information provided by an informant in a foreign country. And certainly, if we have spies working in foreign countries, we don't want anyone to uh, know who they are or how they're operating. Now, uh, we know that neither Mar-a-Lago nor Biden's garage, or his Corvette for that matter, is considered a skiff. And that's why people, I think, have the right to be upset that you have uh, a former president. I think that's worse in a way. And Biden, when he was vice president, spiriting away information that no one else is supposed to see or know about. And that's why people, I think, are right to be upset and they deserve answers. I think this issue is, um, I think when people hear about it, they're concerned. They say it's not right that there's classified information kept by these presidents. But at the same time, I think it's a very confusing issue as we talked about, and I'm glad you gave the explanation. The average person, the average American is not holding classified documents. They've never seen that, that these types of classified documents. They don't know the four levels of clearance that you talked about. Uh, so the average person is sort of left to wonder, well, is this a problem or it's not a problem? And where things get more complicated are that the president was publicly very concerned about the former president's keeping of classified documents. And now he's been caught in a, a similar scandal. Now they're going back and forth and saying that the context is different. The uh, entire environment is different. But there's really two things going on here. Number one is, is that these scandals 
are hard for the American public to grasp. And number two, you now have the Democratic Party saying it's a problem because of the former president, the Republican Party saying it's a problem because of the current president. And uh, I love football analogies. It reminds me of the example of the offense committing a foul on a play and the defense committing a foul on the play. Neither one is penalized. Both sort of uh, end up back in the neutral position. Offsetting penalties. Offsetting penalties. So it just seems like we have that situation here. But what I wanted to bring up is your column that just came out where you talk about the fact that to add to this confusion, we have a very long history, Binyamin, of presidents doing this exact behavior, engaging in this. Absolutely. One of the examples, the prime examples I brought up was uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. He basically took a huge secret home with him to uh, the LBJ ranch when his term ended in uh, the early part of 1969. As I wrote, he had discovered that uh, Richard Nixon, who was the Republican candidate for president in the 1968 election, was trying to undermine Johnson's efforts to bring about last-minute negotiations to end the Vietnam War. And Johnson found out about it through his national security advisor, Walter Rostow. As soon as uh, Johnson found out about it, he said, well, we have to start putting Nixon and uh, the person who was suspected of working with Nixon under surveillance, which they did. And uh, when they finally got more information, again, nothing directly linking Nixon, but when they got enough information, Rostow begged LBJ, you've got to come public with this. It's right before the election. If people find out about this, nobody will vote for Nixon. And then Hubert Humphrey might have won that election. Anyway, LBJ, for reasons which uh, we can only speculate, and I did in my column, uh, he declined to uh, come public with the information. Uh, Nixon won the election. And in this particular case, as I pointed out, uh, we don't know what would have happened if Nixon lost. And we don't know if Johnson's uh, would have been successful at bringing about uh, a peace treaty. But in the interim, uh, the Vietnam War went on another six years and 20,000 more American servicemen lost their lives in Vietnam. So that's a very, very serious consequence. And, and that's uh, an example of what can happen when there's classified information. And maybe LBJ didn't uh, want his surveillance methods to be known. Maybe he didn't want it to be known that he was conducting surveillance on uh, domestic political opponents. But uh, whatever the case may be, uh, he ended up taking that documentation with him back to the LBJ ranch. And it took over 20 years until anyone found out. Uh, that was when an LBJ librarian opened the envelope that Rostow had given with that information. Rostow himself, by the way, had uh, requested that not be open for 50 years, and I can understand why. And then it took until maybe three, four years ago until a Nixon biographer finally found that smoking gun linking Nixon to it. So this is some pretty bad stuff. My own opinion is that I don't think that anything, anything that Trump or Biden has or did is going to end up causing that kind of damage, but you never know. When you look at this issue, it really comes down to the following, which is precedent and confusion. Precedent in the sense that you had Hillary Clinton with her scandal on this. You have LBJ, which you talked about. You have past presidents. This whole issue is about precedent. And now you have the current and former president both involved in this issue. And then you just have this sort of vagueness around this, which again, I just don't think this resonates with the average American. They don't understand this. The average American may understand when someone steals, they may understand when someone cheats, they may understand when someone does bodily harm to another person, but they're not in possession of secret or top secret documents or have ever seen those documents or understand those documents. And as you mentioned in your column, this is many times presidents are looking at this either from a vanity perspective for their memoirs or they're trying to protect things again from a vanity perspective as well. Uh, more often than not, it's not because there's some nefarious purpose involved. That's what the history of this is. 
But it also goes to why it's going to be very difficult for either party to sort of tie the other party into knots over this. That's true. Although uh, going ahead to uh, 2024, uh, I would say this hurts Biden more than Trump for the simple reason that people expect this kind of behavior from Trump. He's much more unconventional. Biden, he was uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee once uh, upon a while, and uh, he should have known better. So uh, I think that all things taken uh, into consideration, and most people point out that Trump had more documents and maybe uh, his offense was greater, but somehow I think this comes back to haunt Biden more than it does uh, Trump. Well, all we know is is that the top secret transcripts from power politics, uh, we are going to keep for the public. They will go to the National Archives. Binyamin and I will not be uh, placing these in our private domus house. That's very true. I don't think it's going to be like the tape that self-destructs in 10 seconds, like Mission Impossible, but yes, yes, we'll keep it our little secret. In the meantime, on a, on a much more serious matter, our guest today uh, is Professor Eugene Kantorovich. He heads the International Law Department at Jerusalem's Kohelet Forum. It's a think tank that many people consider to be the architect of the controversial judicial reform program that's been proposed by the Netanyahu government. In addition to that, Eugene is also... Uh, spends one semester a year in Arlington, Virginia, teaching at the George Mason University's Antonin Scalia School of Law. And that's where he established a center for the Middle East and international law to train young scholars to take a deeper dive into the intricacies of the Middle East. Now, before we bring Eugene on, I want to talk about uh, anti-Semitism and and what it actually feels like on the street. And, And I want to bring it up in this way. I live in Israel, and many, many times people say, wow, Israel, it looks so dangerous and so unsafe. There are terrorist attacks. And how do you live there? And I tell them, you know, yes, there are terrorist attacks and there are times that it's unsafe, but you don't feel it when you're on the street. You really don't. Basically, the streets are fairly crime free. I don't feel the slightest bit uh, uncomfortable walking the streets, but that's because I live here. But someone who's looking at it and they're just looking at the headlines thinks, wow, it's dangerous. So I say the same thing. I look at all the headlines. I read the stories. I see some of the videos of uh, Jews being beaten up on streets in uh, New York, especially. And I say, wow, that's terrible. But what I want to know from you, Maury, you're really there on the scene. What does it feel like? When I was a kid, uh, I was playing with my brothers in our front yard and uh, uh, a bunch of older boys came by, started calling us negative names, swearing with the word Jew in it. They knocked our yarmulkes off. And I, I never forget that feeling of, of helplessness and that feeling that it wasn't fair or it wasn't right. And um, fast forward to probably a month ago where I was just walking in downtown Manhattan and someone spit uh, near me and again said something horrible with, you don't, you dirty Jew X. And I, I, I just think that the climate is such where um, there is more of that than I think we're used to seeing and people are feeling it, especially visible from Jews are feeling it more so than than anybody else. And I think it's important to recognize the fact that that's occurring and understand also, you know, where I hope we learn from our guest is, what does the average person like me do when they have situations like that? What do we do for our college kids on campus who are having their own unique challenges with anti-Semitism? What do we do with those forces that are fighting for BDS? And uh, what do we do with just the sort of the open anti-Semitism that is existing in the world? Because I don't think any little boy should feel that helplessness or any adult should. And I think, unfortunately, now more and more of us are feeling that. Okay, without further ado, if Eugene's ready, uh, let's uh, let's bring him on in. So, Eugene, it's good to speak to you again. Uh, we've spoken many, many times over the years. I've often described uh, Professor Kantorovich as uh, one of my go-to sources. I want to review something you mentioned to me in our last interview. 
where you said that anti-Semitism is a term that needs to be retired. I'd like you to explain that to our listeners and also check if you still feel that way. First of all, it's a term that kind of dropped into the language fairly uh, randomly from some German thinkers. The problem with anti-Semitism is it suggests a kind of Nazi-like, hate-filled, primitive, bigoted, archie-bunker-type bigot. And so many people think, if you're not like that, if you dress properly and you have a good education and you care about human rights and oppression, you can't be an anti-Semite, right? That's for those uh, knuckle-draggers. And as a result, much of the polite anti-Semitism, or sometimes the less polite anti-Semitism, of the educated classes gets excused because people think those people can't be anti-Semites, they're nice people. And it's important to understand that anti-Semites have always had a motivation. They have typically not said, we don't like the Jews stam, we don't like the Jews just because. They've not liked, they've hated Jews because of things they've accused Jews of doing in the world, harm to the world, right? Inventing monotheism, not accepting uh, the Messiah, inventing capitalism, inventing communism, all the ills Jews have been blamed for. And today, the state of Israel is the harm in the world that uh, the Jewish people is blamed for. But the fact that they have a, a reason, an account of the harm Jews cause, does not differentiate them from Hitler, who also had an account of the harm Jews caused and wrote a whole book about it. Professor, there's a growing debate within American uh, Jewry about whether or not anti-Semitism is rising or sort of has always been there. And now it's sort of hit that moment when the media has to start to pay attention to it. How do you feel about this issue? Because it's coming up against each other in terms of the two viewpoints within the community where one feels like it's, it's always been there and this is just everyone else is catching up to it. And others feel, no, something is really rising and bubbling up to the top. I would love to hear also just your comments on things like BDS, things like college anti-Semitism, because I went to school, I'm old now, but I went to school once upon a time, and I remember BDS being a thing that was smaller, but was growing, and it just wasn't as mainstream as it is now. What do you think uh, is happening here? Sort of business as usual, or really something is starting to bubble up here that we haven't seen before? There's always been anti-Semitism, and it takes different forms. Right? In the 50s, Jews could not buy houses in many neighborhoods because of restrictive covenants. There was a whole movie about it, Gentleman's Agreement. Uh, so in the 40s, 50s, Jews couldn't join clubs, uh, live in certain places. And there was a real anti-Semitism of that kind, a, a wasp anti-Semitism, we would say. But what we see today, some things are clearly new. The inability of religious Jews to walk down the streets of New York without being attacked, attacked on a regular, regular basis. This is something new and extraordinary. And has really changed New York from like the haven for Jews in the diaspora, the greatest diasporic city ever, where Jews felt completely at home to a dangerous place. And there's also a sense that this violence is downstream from a combination of government policies and signals that both signal hostility to the Jewish people and also combined with lax approaches to policing, you know, suggests that it's an open season. That's clearly new. You know, the New York Times has never been a friend of the Israel or the Jewish people. My uh, former boss, Seth Lipsky, likes to cite their editorial about the Eichmann trial, where they uh, suggested the fledgling Jewish state turn the other cheek. So they were very critical, as much of the world, of the Eichmann trial. But we see now, with the coverage of Hasidic schools, is completely flabbergasting. I used to be a journalist. I've never seen anything like this. It is a real Dearborn Independent, that's Henry Ford's anti-Semitic newspaper, 
it is a real campaign against the Jews, which if you substituted in any other group than the Jews, it would be unthinkable. And they are on a crusade. That's another thing. It's quite bad that they are on a crusade and combined with pressure through policy on the educational side and the lack of safety on the streets, I think it makes it a particularly challenging time now. Are organized Jewish groups in America too soft in fighting against this? Too gentlemanly, shall we say? Again, the uh, of course they criticize them, they speak out against it, but they are limited in various ways. First of all, they largely don't represent Hasidic uh, groups and Haredi groups, and those interests may be somewhat far away from them. What's happening in the streets of Brooklyn is, is often far from their minds. But the question is also, what are you going to do? Are you going to recommend tougher policing policies? That would, you know, conflict with many of the uh, positions they feel they have to take today after the Black Lives Matter protests. And in many ways, they might culturally share some of these criticisms of the uh, orthodox educational establishment. And, you know, I think for many Jewish organizations, the New York Times is like a, a holy grail, a source of revelation. They can't come out too much against it. At the same time, I think these groups protesting it isn't enough, right? You can make lots of reports against anti-Semitism. I think also, I think there's a real problem that many Jewish groups, because they're nonpartisan, they feel the need to be balanced. They say, we want to, you know, we're going to criticize left-wing anti-Semitism, as they call it, and right-wing anti-Semitism. But you know, as far as I know, right-wing people aren't beating up uh, Jews on the streets of New York. I don't think the people who are are particularly political uh, in general, I wouldn't say they're politically motivated in a clear sense, but that's the problem. There's a clear problem that they're sort of unable and uh, afraid to name. Do you have any recommendations for a course of action? So first of all, and I want to get one back to, you mentioned co the college campuses. College is the easiest situation. First of all, it's not buying and you don't have to go. The college thing is part of a long-standing decline in American higher education, where one's getting uh, less bang for one buck in the product. Uh, it's, you know, less and less education and more and more social justice uh, activism practicum. So college, simple recommendation, don't go study engineering. They don't protest so much. Um, otherwise, I think uh, basic assumptions need to be questioned. Uh, the Jewish diasporic communities have always been uh, peripatetic and mobile. They get comfortable in one place and they have to uh, go somewhere else. You know, it is hard for me to imagine on this trajectory, New York remaining a uh, comfortable environment for Jews. Of course, moving isn't simple. It's simpler now, right? There's Israel, there's Florida, but that possibility needs to be explored and considered. Uh, that would be a disaster for New York, by the way. You know, I think the public call for such a move, right? If Bayam, community leaders were to say, you know, our community is going to have to consider pulling up stakes. New York's not safe for us. That would also send a loud political wake-up call. Eugene, before we let you go, I have to ask you a couple of questions on the Israeli uh, justice system. In fact, well, as we're recording well, now, uh, people won't be listening to this for a week, but just five minutes ago, the Supreme Court ruled that Aryeh Derry is not eligible oh to uh, be a minister in uh, the Israeli government. Uh, to give a few uh, seconds of background, Derry had a plea bargain about two or three years ago on a tax charge. Because of that, he was disallowed from serving in the Knesset then, but the deal was that if there was a new election, he would be allowed to run again. The question that was never settled was whether he could be a cabinet officer if he runs in a new election and is named to the coalition. So the Supreme Court decided today that uh, because of his uh, plea bargain on the tax charge, he's not eligible. If anything, 
that probably adds a fuel to the fire to uh, the campaign to uh, try to uh, rein in the Supreme Court and not have them making these kinds of political decisions. Uh, Eugene, how do you see this playing out? Because uh, again, as I introduced you, uh, the think tank that you're involved with here in Israel is uh, what I would consider to be one of the architects of the uh, Netanyahu a judicial reform plan. So, you know, you're obviously a partisan, I think, on this issue. But considering what's happened to Derry, who I think is still pretty popular in the Orthodox Jewish community, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, I want to explain what the problem is with the Supreme Court's decision, uh, which has nothing to do with, you know, whether it's a good idea for Derry to be a minister or not. The Supreme Court in Israel has vast powers like no court anywhere else with no limits. In America, the politicians, the president and the Senate, pick the Supreme Court justices. In Israel, the Supreme Court is actually picking the government ministers and without any law allowing it to do so. That's the crucial thing. There's a law that was passed specifically for Derry saying that someone in Derry's situation can be a minister in the government. That's what the law says. The Supreme Court does not argue that's what the law says, and they don't argue that the law is unconstitutional. But that's also a brand new law that they just passed right now in order to let him in. It's not like it's longstanding and been on the books. To make it a clear question, to make it not a question of interpretation, the Supreme Court said, yeah, the law, but the law is not a good idea. The law is unreasonable. Against what standard can they judge unreasonable? In America, a statute says that someone who's been indicted can be a minister, which they can, then no court would ever consider saying, it's not a good idea. Here, instead of the democratically elected representatives picking the Supreme Court, the justices of the Supreme Court get to undemocratically pick the uh, composition of the legislative branch. There's nothing like it. And that's why the court needs to be limited, because it is not interpreting the law. It's not sitting as a court. It is acting as a supreme council of vast and unchecked powers with absolutely no democratic accountability. What do you say to those who say that if the government is successful in reigning in the court and passing their judicial reform, that it's going to spell the end of democracy in Israel? We haven't just heard that from the left wing in Israel. We've also heard that uh, whispered from people high up in uh, the Biden government. It would be the beginning of democracy. How is it a democracy if you elect a government and the Supreme Court says, you know what, the people who you want to have as a minister, it's not a good idea. We decide, right? Currently, the results of elections don't matter because uh, the Supreme Court can set them aside, not for being against a written constitution, but for being against their own best judgment. This is essential to restoring democracy, which again, this is not such a crazy idea. The system in which the court does whatever it wants like this was only put in place by Justice Aaron Barak in what he called the judicial revolution in 1995. Was Israel a democracy in 1994? I don't hear people saying it wasn't. Nobody was complaining that there was no democracy. When the left was in power for the first 40 years, when um, you know the secular leftist parties ran Israel for the first 40 years of its existence, there was no judicial review at all. And Israel was certainly a democracy. So this is crucial to restoring democracy and making elections matter in Israel. Eugene Kantorovich, uh, once again, we thank you again for being with us. Uh, we look forward to having you on again. I certainly look forward to uh, keeping in touch with you as this uh, very uh, important and uh, breaking story in Israel rolls forward, and it will over the next few months. Thank you so much. Mori, we just heard from uh, Eugene Kantorovich, and uh, he spoke about two very important topics, of course, uh, anti-Semitism in the U.S., BDS, college campuses. And uh, he also spoke about the breaking news about Derry, who the Supreme Court decided cannot 
be a uh, cabinet minister. Uh, by the time this program airs next week, we'll see what appeals there might be on that and uh, what might happen with that. But in the meantime, Eugene had a lot to say. What's your uh, big takeaway from the interview? Well, first off, I learned that uh, I should not have gotten a Bachelor in Arts. I should have gotten a BS instead. So uh, the professor taught me that he's encouraging people to be engineers instead of instead of getting those BAs. I do think it's interesting whether he's talking about the judicial system in Israel or um, anti-Semitism in America, for him to bring in that history, which we love in this program, demonstrating and explaining whether it's going back to the Eichmann trials or it's talking about the 1995 judicial decision in Israel. It's just interesting for people to take a long view, look at some of these things, as opposed to the way they're sort of bottled for us into you know quick sound bites and an assumption that this is the first time this has ever happened, the first time we've ever thought about it, or the first time that people have had a bias against our community. It's just fascinating to once again hear that uh, repeatedly from guests. Eugene, to me, also made a very important point when he mentioned that an anti-Semite is not necessarily a nasty person. It could be a person who uh, dresses in his uh, finest and who has great manners and speaks well, and who really feels that he's promoting uh, important causes. In the meantime, he uh, still advances uh, theories and ideas that are uh, classic anti-Semitism and that we have to be careful about that. Unfortunately, our enemies, as we know through history, uh, very often have not been uh, the marauders. Yes, there's been the Cossacks and the Crusaders, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also the people in business suits and uh, who are very courteous, but they can be very dangerous enemies. In fact, uh, in some ways, more dangerous enemies. So that was my big takeaway from the interview. Now we come to uh, the portion of the program where we talk about our influencer of the week. Maury, who's yours? To me, it's a no-brainer. I hope we didn't end up with the same one. To me, it's Merrick Garland. I mean, now the attorney general has a special counsel appointed to President Biden. He has the already special counsel in the work, not one, but two situations with President Trump, one for January 6th and the second for uh, his own classified documents issue. So you've got the attorney general who has multiple investigations going on against both parties' biggest spokespeople. And what's very interesting about it is, is that the appointee to the special counsel for Biden happens to be a former Trump appointee as well. You've got to look at him and say to yourself, if you're D.C. and you're walking around and you have someone with the authority and power that he does doing this on the Republican side and the Democratic side, this guy is a force to be reckoned with right now in politics. And I wouldn't be surprised if he may be our person of the week next week or the week after that. I think he has the potential to be the man of the year. We'll see at the end of 2023 who Time Magazine puts on their cover. Maury, we almost had the same person because I, I was also thinking the same way about Merrick Arland. But I took one of your cues because you sometimes come up with something offbeat and softer. And I decided to uh, go for that uh, also. My influencer of the week is Representative Ronnie Jackson, Republican of Texas. Basically, we had this whole controversy where the Consumer Product Safety Commission decided that they might start looking into the possibility of banning gas stoves because there are some health issues. And of course, uh, this basically fell upon the predictable Democratic-Republican uh, divide. But what Representative Jackson said is he tweeted and he said, if, uh, and I quote, if the maniacs in the White House come for my stove, I'm sorry I don't have his Texas accent, but they can pry it away from my cold, dead hands. Come and take it. That's what he said. But what happened next is he encouraged, supposedly, his 550,000 Twitter followers to sign a petition to uh, stop the Consumer Product Safety Commission from doing this. And not only because of Jackson, but because of other people who got involved. So the uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission said, listen, it was only an idea. It's something we're thinking about. We're going to look into it. 
but he basically stopped them dead in their tracks. But I do want to say one thing. The Consumer Product Safety Commission did recently issue a recall on one particular stove of one particular company, which involved 28,000 units. So I'm not minimizing the health and safety issues of this. Uh, It's absolutely important to make sure that uh, whatever stove you have, gas or electric, is working properly and is vented properly. But I can also tell you that when it comes to uh, gas stoves, uh, my wife uh, would not give up her gas stove either. In fact, one time I suggested it. I said, you know, we're dealing with the electricity company and we're dealing with the gas company. It's too many bills. Why don't we just get an electric stove and consolidate? And uh, she said, absolutely not. I cook on fire. My mother cooked on fire. My grandmother cooked on fire. And we're keeping our gas stove. It's also a problem of when the, the electric goes out, when you have a power issue, you could still, you know, we've had many situations where you still could cook Arab Shabbos on Friday if the lights are out, but the gas is still on, Benjamin. So there's multiple reasons. There's a lot of cases to be made. That's a good point, Maury, especially if you're living in Florida where there's sometimes power outages because of hurricanes or in New York, there can be uh, very bad weather that uh, causes the electricity to go down. And uh, more often than not, the gas will uh, still be working. I also just want to say that I love your person of the week. For the listeners, please message us or, ta- or tweet us if anybody can identify from, quote, from my cold, dead hand, where that comes from. A very articulate way of making your point, Benjamin, and an oldie but goodie in politics. And finally today, Maury, uh, our fearless forecast. So uh, first I have to uh, eat some crow because my last fearless forecast basically uh, had Joe Biden announcing that uh, he was going to uh, run again for president on or around Martin Luther King Day. Uh, uh, I make an excuse that because of the uh, classified document scandal, it would have been a really bad look for him to announce he's running again until this thing is either settled or blows over. So I'm going to give myself that excuse. But uh, what I will say is that next week, the Federal Reserve Board is having another meeting on February 1st to uh, discuss interest rate policy. My prediction is, is that they're going to give a very strong hint that they are going to start slowing down the increases or even give a hint that they might start stopping them. Because I think if you take a look at the action of the financial markets, things have calmed down enough and I don't think the Fed wants to induce a recession with their uh, raising of interest rates. And I think they're going to give a very clear hint that they're just about done. I love it. Now, I think you deserve a mulligan on the first forecast because of the uh, various political things that occurred. I don't think you could have predicted that despite your incredible forecast abilities, Benjamin. So I think that if in the next few weeks, Biden does announce, I think we'll still give you on the on the big board, we'll still give you a check for that. So I don't think it's over till it's over yet, Benjamin. So uh, we appreciate the humility, but I, I think we're going to give a couple more weeks to see what happens here, Benjamin. I, I accept that. Uh, my fearless forecast is the comeback of Kamala Harris. The LA Times just produced a, uh, a poll which showed that her favorable was 40% with her unfavorable at 53% of those polled. Those are very high in favorables and the margins are very high. And the LA Times goes on to talk about how her predecessors, whether it was Cheney or it was Gore or it was Biden when he was vice president uh, or even Pence to some degree, uh, just did not have the unfavorables that she's had. Now, the midterms are over. She's going to be now on a path where uh, I think she's a little more free. There's not as much scrutiny on her. She doesn't have to go in there and break a bunch of ties in the Senate. So I think that she starts to get her footing a little bit better. She wasn't attached. Biden went to the border. She didn't have to go to the border. So that issue isn't as attached to her anymore. So I think she gets a little freer in terms of uh, her ability to go out there, make her case, make the argument. I think that we start to see these favorables tick up uh, and the unfavorables tick down. So I think she's going to have a comeback. 
Uh, and I think we start to see a lot more positive press her way and getting her some wins as well. Uh, and really, the Biden administration cannot afford to have their vice president in a funk. Uh, and so I think they push out. They're careful, more careful than they were in the first two years about the things that they associate with her. And if there's ever been any talk about Biden looking for a different vice president in the 2024, I think higher approval ratings will put an end to that conversation for sure. 100 percent. That wraps it up for today. And thank you for listening, as always. Once again, special thanks to uh, Professor Eugene Kantorovich for joining us today and discussing BDS and anti-Semitism in America, and also knowledgeably discussing in a knowledgeable fashion, as he always does, the Israeli court system and how it differs from the U.S. system and why it needs reform. Until next week. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at The Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash power politics. This episode was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.